Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm Joe McCormick and my regular co-host Robert Lamb is not with us today. He is out on vacation, but as a special treat, I am being joined by our in-house audio sorcerer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. Say hi, Seth. Hello, everyone. It's me, Seth. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Happy to be on this side of the microphone. Happy to uh, help out while uh, Robert's out of town. And I'm very happy um, with the, the subject matter that you chose today. So I'm looking forward to this. Right. So we're doing a musical-themed episode today um, because, Seth, you host another podcast. Do you want to tell listeners who are not familiar with the Record Store Society uh, what it's all about? Surely. Um, yeah. So obviously, uh, the main uh, chunk of my time I spend producing this show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, but I also do a weekly show with that I host with my co-host, Tara Davies, and it's called Record Store Society. And um, basically, it's a podcast for music nerds by music nerds. And it's... Um, full-blown just a talk show where people can just share recommendations, things we've been listening to lately, what we love, play some music-based games that you can't really play with other people because you're going very specific and very nerdy about your music tastes. But we pretend we're in a record store the whole time. That's the gimmick. That's the fun little gimmick where we just, uh, uh, yeah, There's we have sound effects and all of our guests are customers and me and my co-host are the employees of the record store. And uh, yeah, it's fun. It's called Record Store Society, and you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. It's a great show, folks. I personally recommend it. In fact, Rob and I uh, did a guest episode where, where we appeared on Record Store Society one time. How long ago was that now? Was it a couple months ago? Where couple We months. ended up talking. Yeah. yeah. It was music videos. Yes, it was a great one. And um, yeah, tons of fun, everyone. If, if anyone's in the mood for uh, music talk, uh, if you're looking for new music recommendations, or you just feel kind of lonely that you don't, none of your friends will, you know, go on a deep dive about, you know, bootleg Neil Young albums, then, you know, you can <laughs> listen to Record Store Society <laughs> and we'll, we'll scratch that itch. Speaking of bootleg Neil Young albums, you ever see that video where he's like going around in record stores and he's finding bootlegs and he's like <laughs> taking them without paying? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you love it. You know, there, there's something yeah. about a musical curmudgeon that always makes me very happy. And uh, he's a good one. He's a very good musical curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. He like takes it up. He's like, I'm on this record and I don't know what this is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so anyway, because uh, Seth of the Record Store Society is joining us today, we thought we would talk about a musical topic. And I think we've got a really interesting one that ties up with uh, neuroscience, big puzzles about how our brains work, emotions, the reward system in the brain, music and aesthetics and fear and, uh, and the autonomic nervous system and all that. And so what we're talking about today is those moments when music is not just fun or interesting or intellectually pleasurable, but when musical pleasure sort of grabs you at the level of the body when it sends a shiver down your spine or when it causes tingling on your skin or even feeling like it's under your skin or when it raises goosebumps on your forearms or on your neck or when it puts a lump in your throat. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about what is sometimes called frisson or frisson. Uh, in the words of one review we're going to be looking at today, it is a transcendent psychophysiological moment of musical experience. It's the, it's the moment where music grabs you by the body and not just the mind. 
Now, Seth, you actually suggested this topic when we were batting around ideas uh, about what to do today. Do you remember how this came to your mind? What's the story here? Um, I, it's a concept I very much, um, I, I've done mild research into into the past because I'm, I'm a person who feels frisson or however we're going to pronounce it. How, how do you think you're going to pronounce it today, Joe? Well, dang, I've already <laughs> been thinking. So I've been saying in my head, frisson, because frisson. it comes from the French. Right, yes. Uh, it comes from a French word meaning shiver. A shiver is a noun, like he gave me a shiver. Right. Uh, but uh, but I've seen plenty of people also call it frisson so, or frusson. So I don't know. We're probably going to jump around, but I'll, yeah. I'll try to we'll go. We'll be as annoying as possible about it. <laughs> but I'll try to go with frisson as well. Um, yeah, yeah. And um Aesthetic chills is the is my favorite definition of frisson, and um, it's something I experience a lot. And as a big music fan, I've often thought, "Am I a big music fan because I acutely feel frisson very often, or do I experience frisson often because?" I'm such a big music fan and I spend so much of my time listening to it and thinking about it and diving deep and spending all my money on records and blah, blah, blah. Like it's a chicken or the egg situation, which I don't think we can ever have an answer to, but it's an interesting idea. And um, I've also not too long ago learned that, of course, not everyone experiences it, which is another very strange aspect when you feel something that you enjoy, like just like whether it be, you know, um, the, the the taste of something sour and you go, oh, other people don't taste sour. And you would go, wait a minute. I thought everyone had this. And it, it, that's that's kind of what I felt when mm-hmm. I learned that Frisson isn't something that everyone experiences. And um, anyway, you, you, you're so good at researching things. I thought you would uh, uh, answer some questions for me. So I'm, 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 I'm ecstatic with uh, with what you've looked into already. Well, I don't think we're going to have full closure on all of the causes of this uh, of this phenomenon today, but we can raise some questions and, and bring up some findings that point off in interesting directions. This is one of those that I think is still somewhat of a puzzle, but there are a lot of pieces of it that are on the table now, and you can arrange them around in different ways and get some ideas of what to do. But maybe it would be good to start describing really strong examples that – Unfortunately, necessarily, I think these are going to have to be subjective. We'll talk about examples that affect us personally, but one thing you'll find is that you know some musical passages are especially prone to eliciting frisson in many people, but there's nothing that's universal. So what gets you might not get somebody else and vice versa. Um, but I, I specifically have a memory from when I was in college of I guess a couple of days or maybe it was even a stretch of a week where I was just listening to one song over and over again. I would like maybe multiple times a day, put on my headphones, turn the volume way up and just listen to the same song over and over again with my head bent down and my eyes closed. Uh, It was a song by Beirut that uh, is called Nantes. And it has this moment where you know it starts off uh, kind of quiet and then suddenly it uh, it becomes loud the rest of the band comes in the rhythm kicks in uh, and there's a there's clicking percussion and more voices that happens, uh, I would just feel these waves of tingling and goosebumps. And I would do it over and over again, almost like I was addicted to it. 
it sort of colors my memory of my experiences of, you know, that summer, 2000, whatever it was. Uh, and, and another thing is I was thinking, I still really love music, but I don't really do things like that anymore. I would sometimes do that with songs, especially when I was in high school and college. And it makes me kind of wonder if age might be a factor in, uh, in how often and how intensely you experience free song or in how motivated you are to have the experience again and again. Uh, does that line up with your experience? It does. However, I would say that I don't believe mine has waned at all. And I'm not really sure. I, I can't explain that either. I, I can't explain why um, something that like when I was in like middle school and high school, I was always the kid with the largest CD collection that had like the giant mm. binder full of CDs. And it was the only thing I cared about and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that that time when music obsession is very, very common. I think most people feel music obsession during those teenage through high school. Yeah, I guess it's all teenage years. I often had people tell me, oh, when I was your age, I love music too. You'll grow out of it. I heard that again and again and again. And here I am knocking on middle age and I haven't really changed much. And I just kind <laughs> of became a different kind of music fan, I guess, mm -hmm. which is now why I, I host that music show too and have hosted other music podcasts in my life. And it's why I run a record label. It's why I'm a musician. It's, it's all these things that I do and really enjoy. So, yes, I, I, I fully agree with you that there is this thing that is, must be something like a dopamine release. And we'll get more into like the specific details about what's happening chemically and all that kind of stuff later. But no, I, I think I still feel it pretty acutely. I think I still um, do obsess over songs far too much and talk about music far too much and go into <laughs> all those things. And um, here's another thing that I'm not sure if we'll get to later. Uh, you and I are also both musicians in our own ways. You know, we are people mm -hmm. who write, record, and play music. Um, Extremely amateur on my part, but yes. But that's still something that not a lot of people do. And I wonder if being a musician has something to do with this as well. Something that has to do with that wiring your brain, that that self-serving dopamine plunger, that, that being a rat with a test and hitting the little buttons so you can get your little food pellets. Mm -hmm. I can't answer these questions, but that's something that makes me think of sometimes when I'm playing something over and over and over again, whether I'm listening to it or with my hand, I'm playing on a musical instrument. I think about that rat getting a food pellet, like you listening to that yeah. Beirut song, you know, it's just like, and one more, please. And one more, please. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was trying to think of other songs that I, mean, I know there, there are tons that are just not coming to mind, but I was making a list while we were getting ready to record this of uh, moments in songs that I know regularly cause frisson for me one is uh, another one i was thinking of is the pre-chorus in the song alex chilton by the replacements do you know the part i'm talking about where the uh the verse transitions to suddenly the background harmonies come in coinciding with the lines of the lyrics children by the millions sing for alex chilton right you know that part yes yeah always does it for me. Um, I was also thinking about there is a, there's an awesome soul song called Into Something Can't Shake Loose by O.V. Wright, uh, where I experienced free song at multiple points in the song, but especially as the intro has these chord changes on the piano, along with uh, sort of uh, plaintive vocals uh, uh, cycling through the same lyrics, but with, with these chord changes leading up to when the rhythm kicks in and the strings come in. Never, never will 
Yeah, chills all over from it. I mean, I, I think if you experience this, there are definitely um, high points that you can always remember. Like off, off the top mm-hmm. of my head, there are always um, a, a couple of really strong examples. Um, and perhaps some of these uh, examples that we're listing will be able to actually somewhat dissect and understand why these examples hold so strong for us. Um, there's a song called Modern World by Wolf Parade, where basically the entire second half of the song is this building extended chorus. We're just like, you know, it's, uh, it's repetitive, but maybe like every bar or two, another instrument is added. Another element mm. is added. And then yeah. like you're, you're, um, I, I I literally feel chills thinking about it right now because I I can hear those notes in my head, and it, it, there's something to do with pattern that really really brings you home and expectation. Um, there's there's also this really great song um, by uh, Animal Collective called Banshee Beat that's very slow, very 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 um, it's a, it's a languid song, you know, very stretched out, mm. and then. Every once in a while, the lead singer, Avi Tear, just hits these notes where he says swimming pool. And it's like it erupts out of him like a volcano uh, would erupt lava. And it's uh, those, those moments as well. There, 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 there are, I mean... And I also do think that, like you were saying before, it's very subjective. Um, For example, when I was uh, talking about this with my wife, Lizzie, last night, and she showed me a uh, Nilufer Yanya song, and I was like, oh, yeah, I know that song. And she's like, that's the one for me. That's the one that gives me the chills. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, it's a great song, but I've never felt it for that. And and so, so I think you are correct, where it is just... It's a subjective feeling built into us individually, and sometimes it's shared... But I think quite often it's not. I think it's very personal most of the time. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that seems to involve both cognitive and emotional elements. Like it's cognitive in that uh, sort of sort of knowledge and context matters and like it matters how much attention you're paying to the music. Uh, like music that's on in the background is usually unlikely to cause frisson. I don't know if you have the same experience. It's, it's especially when you're really listening actively that it happens, especially at higher volume. Right. Um, but the other thing is that it uh, sometimes it gets the better of you, or at least in my experience, I can get frisson from songs that um, that I don't want to be unkind, but that I might regard as sort of like blatantly manipulative or what some people might call hack songwriting. You know, I don't like to just like crap all over music, but like right. there there are songs that uh, that I like, but like I acknowledge that they're very cheesy. You know, they're not necessarily, they don't convey emotional maturity and yet they still can cause this intense reaction. Uh, one I was thinking of is, uh, in fact, there are several songs probably by Jim Steinman that do this for me who he hits it seems like he hits all of the bars i was thinking about the song nowhere fast from the movie streets of fire right. which is intensely cheesy jim steinman pop songwriting uh but like on the pre-chorus when you know the the high voices come in it jumps up an octave and it's really loud
and I get the shivers. And and I I um I've definitely experienced the same thing. And that line between cheesy and emotional and what your body is actually taking in as opposed to perhaps what your brain thinks differently of it. Like there's like an mm-hmm. intellectual and an emotional place where it hits you. And sometimes I'm not even sure if this is true. Um, there's a feeling of embarrassment almost for the performer. And then you think to yourself, are these chills that I'm feeling part of Frisson or are these chills perhaps some sort of like almost like a cringe thing? And I think it's usually frisson. I don't think it's usually yeah, yeah. embarrassment, but they're they're, like, they're you're not too good for Jim Steinman. No, <laughs> exactly. But I do think they are like somehow perhaps like neighbors in a way. And um I think there is something about emotional pull compared with intellectual pull and mm-hmm. them working in tandem can create this emotion because at the end of the day a lot of music is just math. It's a lot of patterns. It's a lot of um, time signatures. It's a lot of, you know, hitting things at the correct time. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to that, th- there's that's the intellectual side. And then there's the performance aspect, which brings an emotional side. And that can, I, I, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but I think you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, one last example for people to think about maybe before we move on to uh, to dissecting the concept a little bit more is uh, this is one example I came across by way of a researcher named Matt Sachs. So I was watching an interview with him that I found on the internet, and uh, and he mentioned that in demonstrating musical frisson in his lectures, he used an isolated track of the background vocals from the song Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. And those background vocals are sung by uh, a singer named Mary Clayton. And when, when you, when I hear them in the song, I mean, I love Gimme Shelter. It's a classic rock song and it's great, but the song itself does not give me chills. However, the isolated background vocals by Mary Clayton absolutely give me chills it all up and down the body. Uh, and, and I think that's interesting, too, that you could actually heighten the effect in some cases by removing other elements and isolating just one part of a song. Uh, and Sachs has actually said in this interview I was watching that um, something like 90% of people say that this one example gives them chills. It seems to be like a sort of home run example to use. Let's try it on our audience for a second. Now, uh, we're going to give you the caveat here that because of uh, legal fair use stuff, I can only play about 10 seconds for you. So you may not feel it in this moment, but perhaps if you look this up on your own and listen to the full thing. Uh, however, I got to say, um, when I listened to this track for the first time um, with this isolated Mary Clayton thing, it kicked in for me pretty quickly. So uh, here, let's play a little bit of that track right now. So that's the Mary Clayton isolated vocal there. and oh, Powerful, yeah. It absolutely is. Um, there's a lot of ways that people have described this feeling. Like, like, what are a few of them? Oh, yeah. So there are different terms people have used. Some people call it uh, aesthetic chills. Some people say musical chills because obviously part of the sensation is similar to feeling cold, though also somewhat different. There's a, a tingling or shivering sensation that runs up different parts of the body, uh, different uh, 
studies have looked at feeling this in different parts of the body, but it seems to sometimes happen in the limbs, like in the arms or legs or up and down the spine. Uh, of course, there is the term frisson, which we've been using today, and that's from the French word meaning shiver. Uh, some people have used the term uh, skin orgasm, which that seems uh, – in some ways, kind of, kind of uh, phenomenologically accurate with some of the sensations, but it also brings in a lot of baggage that's not that's perhaps confusing. Yeah, and in particular, because um, I have also come across that term before, and I get it in like a um, almost like a cutesy description kind of way. However, mm-hmm. th- at least in my understanding, there's nothing really sexual associated with this phenomenon whatsoever. So mm-hmm. it does just kind of like add another element that doesn't actually exist at least uh, to my understanding. Yeah, it, it brings in baggage that is not necessary to understand the concept. And so it, it's probably better not to do that one if you're trying to ask what is this thing and how can we explain it? Right. And then there's one other thing we should probably mention just by way of saying that we're not really going to get into this today, which is the the concept of ASMR. People have asked us to talk about this on the show before. I, I guess we've never really gone into it in depth. It seems like this may have some kind of uh, overlap with what we're talking about today or at least share some boundaries. But we're just going to bracket that as, as a concept that may be in some ways related but is different from what we're talking about. Right. Anecdotally, I can say for myself – I experience Frisson often and strongly, but I don't believe I've ever experienced ASMR. So yeah. I, I I can't explain that, but you, I completely agree with you. It's 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 um, could be related, but definitely bracketed and separate. Yeah. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to be focusing on this feeling of Frisson, the subject of the psychophysiological response to music. And we're going to be asking this question of why do certain songs, specifically certain moments in songs, elicit such a strong reaction in the body? What does it have to do with pleasure and pain and the obscure functioning of the reward pathways in our brains? Who gets it? What causes it? And why is it pleasurable? Uh, and I, so, yeah, I'm really glad you brought the subject up, uh, Seth, because I, I think it's a fascinating puzzle, one that we probably can't conclusively answer, but we can raise findings that, that point us off in a lot of interesting directions. I think maybe the listeners will have a lot of fun trying to uh, see if they can put this uh, puzzle together themselves as well. Yeah, and I think with those puzzle pieces, it does make the experience of experiencing Frison a bit more fun when you can perhaps recognize those patterns in the music you're listening to and go, oh, perhaps that's the reason why I'm feeling this right now. And get kind of a repeatable experiment where you can go, oh, I've noticed that X, Y, or Z are what cause it in my own sensations. And then it it is a bit, it's a little self-experimentational and it's honestly, I find it kind of fun. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's one of the most dangerous and thrilling of states, the state of being able to partially understand your own mind. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so looking in the phenomenology of of these music thrills of of Frisson, uh, unfortunately, this is one of those areas where there is a bunch of existing research at this point, but a lot of it is focused on related but slightly different questions, which is just always a mess to wade through. So there there are different studies out there that sort of use different terminology to describe the feelings Uh, Clearly, these feelings overlap a lot. Uh, Sometimes they include or isolate different components of it. Uh, Some call it chills. Some call it thrills. Some consider goosebumps a necessary part of Frisson. Some don't. Some only look at goosebumps and not these other sensations. So unfortunately, when we're talking about the research going forward, uh, you're just going to have to 
accept and keep in mind that what we're talking about here is not a unified phenomenon with a consistent definition across all these studies, but sort of a, a system of related phenomena with family resemblances that have been approached from a bunch of different angles. Uh, but it's clear that they're all at least somewhat related. They're all part of this intense psychophysiological response to music. So what are the actual descriptive characteristics of the Frison response? Well, I was watching a 2019 conference presentation by a researcher working in the neuroscience of music, who I'm going to refer to several times throughout this episode. Her name is Psyche Louie, and she lays out some of the most common responses, uh, breaking down responses to music into categories of the sort of abstract versus the visceral or somatic. Now, in the abstract responses to music, you've got general strong emotions. Uh, you've got the idea of feeling transported to another place or time. You've got the feeling of awe. You've got uh, losing your sense of time or where you are or the evocation of memories. But then on the other hand, you've got these visceral and somatic responses to music. And these are the responses in the body, the ones we're focused on today, which are uh, chills, goosebumps, lump in the throat, heart racing, crying, uh, feeling in the pit of the stomach, and generally the, the sort of pleasurable appraisal of these sensations in the body. Seth, what do you think about that list of sensations in the body? Does, is, does that ring true to you? Uh, yeah, 100%. And um, since uh, uh, looking into this more recently, I've actually been paying more attention to what I personally experience. And I did not realize that goosebumps were such a part of my own personal Frisson experience. But while listening to so many Frisson-inducing tracks over the past few days, and then actually like looking at my body and being like, oh, oh there they are, you know, <laughs> there, mm -hmm. there are my goosebumps. And um, so, yeah, no, I, I fully believe that to be true. And um, here, here's another thing that I, I believe is going to get a bit anecdotal when it comes to who gets Frisson from music. And I apologize for how many times I'm going to say anecdotal, but this is a very anecdotal kind of phenomenon. <laughs> it's it's difficult to really hammer it down. And um, depending upon the source, I've looked at a few. Uh, a lot of people say about two-thirds of people experience Frisson, but I've seen it as low as 55 and as high as 86. So that's a pretty broad spectrum for how many people they believe to experience this. Yeah, as to the reports of the, the inconsistency in uh, in the reported prevalence of Frisson, you go out and survey people say, you know, hey, how many of you um, on average have these chills and goosebumps and all these things when you listen to music? You're going to get different answers, probably because the question is being asked in a different way or with different criteria. So this is one of the problems with the phenomenon not being consistently defined or, or measured. And, and plus, self-diagnosis is always a pretty yeah. tricky thing in general, too, with something so kind of ephemeral. And perhaps that is why some studies focused on um, physical reactions like goosebumps. It's like, you yeah. can't lie if I see your goosebumps. There they are right, or there exactly. they aren't. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's clear that like more than half of people have Frisson. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that seems to be the case for sure. And um, I, I can say this. So... Um, uh, again, for the uh, podcast that I host, Record Store Society, we have a, a Discord channel. Um, if people don't know what Discord is, it's more or less um, a message board that, that people you know go, and it's exclusively for people who listen to this podcast that I host. And so, therefore, everyone on there is a big old music nerd. Like, that's just kind mm -hmm. of like, you wouldn't go there if you weren't. So the other day, Frisson got brought up because I, I actually heard this new song um, that I really enjoyed called uh, Paranoia Party by Francis Forever. And when I heard it, 
I absolutely got tons of frisson from it. Like, um, mm-hmm. there's a real nice build. There's a, a big change from like quiet to loud. There's a, a lot of patterns kind of breaking down and then reemerging. A lot of these things that perhaps uh, influence frisson. And um, so I posted it on the uh, Discord channel for Record Store Society going, oh man, I get big time free song for this. And a couple of people were like, I had to Google that word, but now that I know what you're talking about, me too. And then someone else go like, oh, me too. And someone else would say like, me too. And I have to Mm -hmm. say that this is, again, here's that word, anecdotal, entirely anecdotal. But like 100% of the people on this message board for extreme music nerds everybody was feeling it. Like there, there wasn't anybody who did not know what the feeling and sensation of Frisson was. So it says something about attention and it's that chicken or egg thing again, I believe. Also, at least one study I was looking at found that people tend to find familiar music more likely to cause Frisson. Yeah, I, 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 I can, I can definitely see that uh, in particular with that song I was just talking about the first time I heard it, certain things would make a hit for me. For example, a sudden change in volume, because that's something mm-hmm. that is going to hit me no matter what. I don't need any prior knowledge. Just volume is volume. But mm-hmm. then the second time I listened to that same song, the anticipation that I knew that the volume change was coming, that hit me in a different way too. And I felt it from yes. the anticipation as well. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I 100% believe that as well, that, that the a familiar song can cause it for reasons other than just purely um, what's there. It, it's yeah. not just about Anticipatory what it is. Anticipatory chills, yes. For sure. Uh, chill, chills and, and feelings of Frisson leading up to the moment of the, sort of the peak of, that you're you're anticipating. Right. Yes. Roller coaster. Yes. Yeah. But I feel like what we were just saying would sort of uh, go along with, it, with the study that I was looking at. Uh, Seth, I think I actually dug this up. Because you you found an article, uh, a popular level article by one of the authors of this study. Uh, so this was by Mitchell C. Culver and Amani L. Alele, uh, published in the journal Psychology of Music in 2016, called "Getting Aesthetic Chills from Music: The Connection Between Openness to Experience and Frisson." Uh, so this is another entry in the the who gets frisson from music uh, uh, question. So this study uh, compared people's reports of their feelings of frisson in music with physiological responses, so like measuring things like uh, skin conductance responses, and a personality typology test that was based on the five factor model. Uh, now, if you're not familiar, the the five factor model is a way of sort of classifying people's personalities according to five different metrics. So you know, you can sort of get an idea of many things about a person and what kinds of preferences they might have, what kinds of behaviors they might show if you know their scores on five different measures. And these measures would be conscientiousness, uh, agreeableness, neuroticism, extroversion, and openness. So uh, listeners who experienced free songs tended on average to be higher in the trait openness. It's also known as openness to experience. Hmm. Uh, I was looking for a, a good 
uh, succinct definition of openness to experience. This one comes from the Encyclopedia of Applied Psychology by McRae in 2004, and it identifies that uh, the, the relevant traits of openness to experience are tolerance of ambiguity, low dogmatism, need for variety, aesthetic sensitivity, absorption, unconventionality, intellectual curiosity, and intuition. Uh, so people who are high in the trait openness tend to be more interested in and tend to prefer difference, variety, and novelty, whereas people who are lower in trait openness tend to prefer what's familiar and traditional. Wow, that's interesting. So in a write-up feature about this research, one of the authors, uh, Mitchell C. Culver, uh, wrote, quote, while previous research had connected openness to experience with Frisson, most researchers had concluded that listeners were experiencing Frisson as a result of a deeply emotional reaction they were having to the music. So, right, the idea would have been well, maybe people who are higher in openness to experience are just more likely to have deep emotional connections with, with music. But uh, Culver goes on to say, in contrast, the results of our study showed that it's the cognitive components of openness to experience, such as making mental predictions about how the music is going to unfold or engaging in musical imagery, which is a way of processing music that combines listening with daydreaming that are associated with Frisson to a greater degree than the emotional components in a whole bunch of um, kind of uh, conflicting information that we are receiving and, and kind of like experiencing with this whole thing. That's one of the biggest ones to me is that like the emotional experience of openness based on the cognitive components of openness. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that, that, that's, that's, that's a head scratcher. That's, that's, it, it makes sense to me in a way, but um Again, we're talking about the emotion plus the intellect in a very strange way. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's possible that their their findings are incorrect. But if Culver and El Alele are correct, what they're saying is that people who are high in the trait openness are perhaps not getting more frisson experiences because they're more emotional, but because they tend to engage in more pattern recognition and prediction behavior when listening to music, that they're more likely to be engaging with a piece of music in a way that seeks out patterns in the structure of the song and tries to predict what's coming next. And that that activity is more highly associated with these extremely uh, powerful psychophysiological experiences, more so than the uh, than the emotional components. And I think that's interesting. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and at least in my own experience, I can definitely feel that to be true. If I look at the songs that give me frisson patterns and then a subversion of a pattern or yes. a almost like doubling down on a pattern like like either way can really do mm -hmm. it but 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 really a um some sort of accent upon a pattern whichever yeah. path you want to take on that this will come back a major theme in the research about the underlying mechanisms of frisson has to do with patterns and prediction and uh and anticipation but anyway, uh, to move on to other things. So that, that was that people who are higher in the trait openness tend to report more frissons. Uh, there is another, uh, there is apparently a social component. I was reading a note that a researcher named Alf Gabrielson in 2012 in a work called Strong Experiences with Music reported that people who listen to music together with a friend or partner experience more activation of the autonomic nervous system, which is associated with these, these reactions in the body. The autonomic nervous system is uh, 
is the part of the nervous system that controls things that are that are involuntary in your body, such as maintaining, of course, you know, a heart rate and digestion and breathing and all that, but also homeostatic responses, uh, responses to changes in temperature and the fight or flight response, which is specifically a subset of the autonomic nervous system known as the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system appears to often be activated in these frisson experiences. So something's going on in the body where a, a, a musical frisson has something in common with the fight or flight response, which is very interesting. And we'll get more into that later on. Now, another way to approach this question of who gets musical frisson um, is, can we learn anything by identifying what people have in common when they don't experience musical frisson? Hmm. Uh, so, uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier that, uh, presentation I was watching by the researcher Psyche Louie, uh, and she was talking about studies that have been done with people who have what's called musical anhedonia. And this is a condition where people just do not really derive pleasure from music. Uh, now it's important to specify what musical anhedonia is not. It's different from what's known as amusia or tone deafness. People with musical anhedonia do not show major errors in their perception of music. They can hear it just fine. And it's different from general anhedonia. So people with musical anhedonia can derive pleasure from other things. It's not a generalized lack of pleasure. It's just a lack of pleasure from music. And one thing Louis talks about is research that has found that people with musical anhedonia have different patterns of connectivity between the auditory regions of the brain and a region of the brain known as the nucleus accumbens. Uh, so the nucleus accumbens is important in the reward system. It is used to drive motivation for the anticipation of rewards, including things like food, sex, money, and drugs. Basically, like anything you can think of that would be, you know, a kind of pleasurable stimulus that would really motivate you to want to get more of it, that motivation to get more of it is mediated by the reward system in the brain, including the nucleus accumbens. This might be um, also very unscientific for me to say, but all those things also seem to have um, elements of um, anticipation and dopamine. Oh, yes, exactly. So the thrill you get in anticipation of one of these things, food, sex, money, drugs, any of these these things, uh, the thrill you get in the brain while you're in pursuit of that goal uh, is very much related. That is the reward system working to motivate your behavior. Now, another interesting thing about who gets musical frissons, uh, I was reading a about a study by the Estonian neuroscientist Jak uh, Panksepp who found in research in 1995 in the journal Music Perception that, at least in his study, that uh, women reported experiencing chills from music somewhat more, more often than men did, though obviously people of all genders get the chills. It found that it was a little bit more common in women. And also, uh, there was an interesting observation from Ponksep's study, which was this, quote, Many mistakenly believe that happiness in music is more influential in evoking the response than sadness. A series of correlational studies analyzing the subjective experience of chills in groups of students listening to a variety of musical pieces indicated that chills are related to the perceived emotional content of various selections with much stronger relations to perceived sadness than happiness. So according to, to Panksepp's research here, Sad music is more likely to cause frissons in reality, 
But when people are just sort of asked to speculate, they tend to believe that happy music causes it more. Isn't that fascinating? And it makes me wonder, like, could this be related to confusion in reflecting on your own experiences of Frisson? Because maybe even though it actually happens to you more often with negative valenced aesthetic content, you know, sad music, sad movies, the experience itself is somehow pleasurable. So maybe you mistakenly believe it to be caused by more positive valenced content in your memory, at least. I don't know that that's the, the causal chain there, but that, that mistake that people make is interesting. Yeah, it definitely could be some sort of confirmation bias. Um, because even now, when you said that, I thought to myself, okay, what are all the examples I'm thinking of? They are 100% happy songs. I, 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 mm-hmm. I, and, and I think part of it, at least for me, is there's perhaps something triumphant in, in a lot of the, the songs that create the frisson feeling in me, um, mm-hmm. a, maybe a bit bombastic. I'm not going to apologize that I get tons of free song from Les Miserables. Right. Uh, yeah. But, you know, when, when, when Do You Hear the People Sing comes on, I, I get that feeling all over. And there is something that is triumphant about that song, but there's a, there, there's a subtlety to it. There, there's an ambiguity to it because the song and its lyrical content and even something about the way it sounds implies a kind of risk or threat. Does that make sense? It does. And, and, and perhaps that kind of duality is just part of music in general. Like I was thinking about that Beatles song. Um, it's like, I've got to believe it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. And then you hear John Lennon say, it couldn't get much worse. Mm-hmm. We're like, it seems like a very positive song unless you pay attention. <laughs> and, then, uh-huh. yeah. and then it's like, oh no, no, this is a very sad song that is hopeful perhaps. And, and perhaps yeah. that, that, that dichotomy is just a part of music in general, which, ha- which needs to be factored in as well. Huh? Uh, so do you, yes, for me, do you hear the people sing? It is sort of triumphant sounding, but in its lyrical content, it is a demonstration of courage in the face of near certain death. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, uh, so ready to move on to maybe the next question, which is what triggers Frisson in music? Like what are the specific auditory triggers that bring it about most often. Again, this is something where there's probably going to be a lot of um, idiosyncrasy in people's responses, but there are certain things that do tend to emerge as, uh, as like the most common triggers. And here I'm going to be referring to, I can't remember if I already said the name of this paper. I think I didn't, but this is a paper that is a, uh, a review of the, uh, of the existing research on Frison as of 2014 by uh, Luke Harrison and Psyche Louie, who are, mentioned and it's called thrills chills frissons and skin orgasms toward an integrative model of transcendent psychophysiological experiences in music and this is published in uh, frontiers in psychology 2014 and they collect some of the existing research on musical frisson inducers. One big study that looked into this was uh, Sloboda in 1991. And this one found that the common types of musical phrases that bring people to a state of frisson were, uh, quote, chord progressions descending the circle of fifths to the tonic. Very specific. Uh, then melodic appoggiaturas. Uh, so apogeaturas are when there is a grace note or grace notes added to a melody before or between the expected notes. Uh, I feel like this is kind of hard to explain without singing it. I, I kind of don't want to sing it because that would sound pathetic. But but I know what you mean. It, it's that quick anticipatory note right before the actual kickoff of the chorus or the verse or the bridge or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So if you can imagine a familiar melody, say, imagine somebody singing the melody of uh, of London Bridge is falling down, but adding in little grace notes in between the familiar notes of the melody. Does that make sense? It does to me, but does okay. it make sense to our listener? <laughs> Uh, but then also uh, the onset of unexpected harmonies. This is a huge one for me. A lot of the ones th- that I can think of are when are when harmonies come in, it, when vocal when new vocals are added. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then they also say and melodic or harmonic sequences, which seems very unspecific to me. So I'm not <laughs> sure what to make of that. Uh, but they also cite another study by Grua et al. or Greva et al. in 2007 that found. Um, that the onsets of Frisson were, quote, most likely to occur during peaks in loudness, moments of modulation, and works in which the melody occupied the human vocal register. Hmm. Uh, and all of that sounds right to me. A, a big thing is uh, changes in volume, dynamic changes, sudden dynamic leaps where you go from uh, for, where you go from soft to suddenly loud or from loud to suddenly soft. Those have been shown to uh, elicit Frisson. Um, but then also sudden changes in, say, the register when you jump up an octave or something like that. Right. Yeah. And they point out that these uh, these triggers tend to point in the direction of Frisson having something to do with expectancy violation, because almost all of the things that have been identified as major triggers of Frisson are when a song has established a pattern and then the pattern suddenly changes in some way. That all makes sense. Now, I guess it's time to move on to the question of why does this happen? This is really the big puzzle, right? So you've got something that's just a a song. It is, you know, music. It is vibrating air molecules that are stimulating your ears. It's sound that occurs in a certain pattern or or cycle of, of tones and rhythmic pulses. And somehow that means something to you. And it not only means something to you, it triggers this powerful response that seems to involve uh, the emotions and and pleasure seeking and and the full body and and maybe something having to do with the autonomic nervous system, kind of like a fight or flight response would. So it's this big mess that's obviously really complicated. So one of the things that I thought might be helpful to start by looking at is one specific subset of musical frisson which is the experience of goosebumps. So it's actually, I think, at root, a fascinating question in itself. Why would human beings get goosebumps from aesthetic reactions to art and music? You know, this is a biological response that it's, uh, at least at first glance, hard to identify a cause and effect relationship for, right? Yeah, it doesn't make much sense intellectually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you get goosebumps, the technical term for what's happening here is piloerection. It's also sometimes known as the pilomotor reflex. Um, and what's going on in your body when you get goosebumps is that in your skin, at the base of your body hairs, there are these little muscles known as erector pili. And when these muscles contract, it causes your hairs, which are normally relaxed and, and lying flat, to suddenly stand on end. It sort of like pulls them down tight and they stand straight up. And the question would be, why does the body do this? Well, there are a couple of major explanations that are correlated with what normally causes goosebumps or or similar uh, reactions in animals, especially animals with more hair than us. One uh, answer is the cold. When you are cold, your body is losing heat through the skin. 
And the piloerection response is an evolutionary adaptation that helps protect the body against heat loss by insulating the skin. So your body detects a chill and it protects itself by contracting the erector pili, causing the body hair to stand up. Uh, this obviously would have been much more useful to human ancestors who had significantly more body hair than we do. It does a lot less to help insulate our relatively unhairy bodies today, but it seems to be a, a somewhat vestigial trait. Like it, when we get cold, we still get the goosebumps uh, as if we had a big coat of fur to help insulate us when, when our skin did that. But it's not just when we get cold. There are also threats of danger that cause the palomotor response. So the body deploys the same reflex, the same piloerection in response to sudden shocks or fear or threats of danger. And the evolutionary reasoning is that this provides a survival advantage because piloerection makes the body look bigger. So you've probably seen a cat that gets spooked by some kind of possible threat, maybe an aggressive dog, or maybe just a cucumber on the floor or whatever. It, it seems to detect the possibility that some other kind of animal is there threatening it and its fur stands up on end. Now the cat looks thicker, larger, it looks more dangerous and able to defend itself, which means that this other animal or, or pseudo-animal is less likely to attack. And these explanations for the pilomotor reflex have been known about for a long time. Actually, Charles Darwin wrote about these uh, reactions and, and goosebumps in his book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, in 1872, where he wrote that, quote, hardly any expressive movement is so general as the involuntary erection of the hairs, feathers, and other dermal appendages. And he noted correlates of these in, in not just mammals, but in mammals and in birds and in reptiles, which I thought is interesting. Right. So the evolutionary reasoning connecting goosebumps to a survival advantage in the, in the case of cold or threats makes very solid sense. But why would this connect to abstract emotions or to aesthetics like music? So I was looking around for good explanations of this. One thing I came across was an explainer I found in Scientific American from 2003 by a physiologist and professor of zoology at the University of Guelph in Ontario named George A. Bubenik. Uh, who said that basically all goosebumps responses involve the release of adrenaline and the activation of the autonomic nervous system, like we were talking about earlier. And uh, uh, Bubenik writes, quote, adrenaline, which in humans is produced in two small bean-like glands that sit, sit atop the kidneys, not only causes the contraction of skin muscles, but also influences many other body reactions. In humans, adrenaline is often released when we feel cold or afraid, but also if we're under stress and feel strong emotions emotions such as anger or excitement other signs of adrenaline release include tears sweaty palms trembling hands an increase in blood pressure a racing heart or the feeling of butterflies in the stomach uh so that's a little frustrating because it it establishes the uh, possible mechanism in the endocrine or nervous system that may be partially correct for explaining the mechanism in these cases but you're still kind of left wondering why right right and also it's been brought up before this connection to uh, fight or flight, but the why has not been explained yeah. Yeah. at all. Uh, so uh, I'll try another one here. So this one, I'm not sure how good of an explanation this is, but at least I, I found it very interesting. So this is what's known as the separation call hypothesis. This is another evolutionary explanation for emotional chills, and this one goes back to somebody I mentioned earlier in the episode, the Estonian neuroscientist Jak Panksepp, who uh, he's known for creating the, the, no, uh, the term affective neuroscience, the neuroscience of emotions. 
And uh, Panksepp's hypothesis, I found a good summary of it in another paper that was by Benedict and Karenbach in Biological uh, Psychology in 2011. So I'm going to read their summary of, of Panksepp's view. He argues that the separation calls of lost young animals used to inform parents about the whereabouts of their offspring. These calls might have induced internal feelings of coldness and chills, which enhance the motivation for social reunion. A preserved responsivity to certain acoustical features, e.g. sustained high-frequency notes as often presented by solo performers, may represent an unconditional component of the chill response. This theoretical approach, which could be termed separation call hypothesis, Thus relates piloerection to sensations of coldness and sadness. Uh, so this is interesting. I, I'm kind of skeptical that this explains everything that's going on, but it does uh, touch on multiple features in a way that would make some kind of causal sense in an evolutionary perspective. So the idea is that, okay, you separate baby rats from their mothers and the baby rats get cold and they squeak at a particular frequency that triggers mm. the, the, the parent rat to locate them quickly. So the process would go, the baby is alone, feels temperature decrease. The baby releases a separation call. This causes a feeling of separation, a feeling of loss or a kind of correlate of sadness in the human context and a feeling of physical coldness, chills or even goosebumps in the mother, motivating rapid reunion and contact with the baby rat. So Ponksep was arguing that maybe these uh, emotional goosebumps we feel in, in response to music have a deep biological root in this mammalian separation call and, and the response that we would feel uh, in, in, re in reaction to hearing it. Perhaps some sort of like uh, evolutionary leftover kind of a thing. Right. So you'd have certain types of sounds or thought patterns triggering this feeling of being moved, uh, which, uh, which would simultaneously cause a feeling of almost like physical coldness, the chilling feeling, goosebumps, and a feeling of separation and a motivation to reestablish social contact, which in itself would be a a sort of uh, a reward motivation where you've got a goal now and you're like, I need to get this. I mean, um, if true, that's absolutely amazing. Everything that could come from a simple, like evolutionary leftover instinct, you know, like think about the entire music industry coming from just this leftover response that has kind of like yeah. almost, um, almost pointed us in the wrong direction, but we get so much pleasure yeah. out of it anyway. Yeah, and I think this may have something to it. Uh, and I've read that there are some subsequent studies that kind of lent support to it, at least in some cases. But it also seems hard for me to imagine that this is the direct root of all emotional chills. Uh, I mean, maybe it, maybe this kind of causation is wrapped up in there somewhere, but I'm still thinking about other ideas. Mm-hmm. So one of the other ideas comes back to something that we, we've uh, mentioned a few times now, which is about patterns and predictions. Now, earlier I mentioned this uh, conference presentation I watched by Psyche Louie, uh, the, the uh, musical neuroscience researcher. It was at the Brain Mind Summit at MIT in 2019. And, uh, and she talks about this hypothesis in, in her presentation. So she says that a lot of our response to music has to do with fulfillments and violations of expectations. So you think about what's, you, what's your actual experience of listening to music? What is your brain doing when you're paying attention to the music you're listening to? I, I think it's that music establishes patterns you know, phrases are repeated, chord progressions cycle in often symmetrical ways. 
Uh, popular music, of course, has the very common verse-chorus-verse structure. Uh, and there, though there are other types of music like jazz and classical music that are less repetitious and ha- have less to do with established patterns, they still do establish some patterns. You, you can feel out the grammar of a uh, a, a classical symphony or, or uh, a jazz improvisation, even though they might be less repetitive than some familiar types of pop and rock music. Right. Like maybe there's just a theme that repeats or perhaps it just being played in the same key. You go, oh, I can kind of predict where this is going to go based simply on like instinctual knowledge of like, you know, different uh, chord progressions and different different um, uh, scales, that kind of thing. So yeah, a piece of music has a kind of implied grammar or syntax has kind of rules that you can learn. And then you use that to predict how it's going to develop from the present moment. And so she talks about how this feeling of being able to predict what's coming next usually is something that we find rewarding in the brain. Like in the actual reward system, uh, the ability to say, hey, I, I think I know what's going to happen next, and then anticipating and then trying to see if your prediction is correct, that is a, a reward motivation process in that part of the brain. And this actually comes back to something I think we uh, already mentioned a little bit earlier in the episode, but the uh, the research finding um, that people who get chills from music versus people who don't get chills from music, there are differences in the amount of fiber connecting different parts of the brain. In this case, it's the amount of white matter connecting uh, regions of the auditory system where you would be processing incoming sounds. Um, in the temporal lobe, two regions of the frontal lobe that Louis says are important for emotion and reward, again, specifically the nucleus accumbens and the medial prefrontal cortex. Hmm. And so this comes back to the dopaminergic reward system. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that I think is sometimes a bit mischaracterized as being synonymous with the feeling of pleasure, which is slightly off because the dopaminergic reward system is not just responsible for feeling good after getting what you want, but for managing the salience of incentives, managing your awareness of things in your environment that you might want and your motivation to get them. So dopamine increases in the brain in anticipation of receiving a reward, and it plays a role in motivating you to repeat a behavior that caused you to get a reward in the past. So in our ancestral environment, these rewards would be things that provided a survival or reproduction advantage, so food, water, sexual partners, but also things like parental care. But our reward systems can also become motivated by rewards that are at a sort of abstract remove, like money or perhaps things like enjoyable art and music, or even by substances that stimulate the reward pathways chemically, like opiates or cocaine. Uh, But from some of the neuroscience research, it looks like when we have these intensely pleasurable psychophysiological responses to music, something is going on with the reward pathway that has to do with predictions, that pleasure in music somehow has something to do with the listener recognizing patterns and the reward-seeking mechanisms in the brain being motivated to detect and predict those patterns. This makes me want to speculate, but I will not. <laughs> oh, no, no, go right ahead. My, my speculation is this. Um, I remember uh, basically reaching a certain age where um, you think to yourself, 
uh, gosh, I hate school. School's annoying. Gosh, school. Uh-huh. Oh, well, what a drag. And then someone wiser will tell you, you know, school isn't actually about the uh, the lessons. It's not about the homework. School is about learning how to learn. It's about learning mm-hmm. how to be intellectually curious enough that in the future, when you do want to know something, you can teach yourself how to know it because you've learned how to learn. And in my mind, I'm thinking about how music is kind of instilling this desire for pattern recognition, which personally I do think benefits life. And I do think benefits, um, oh, problem solving and benefits, you know, uh, making a grocery list, everything, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. patterns are extremely useful in our society. So it's, it's, um, Perhaps it is an evolutionary leftover that makes us enjoy music, but perhaps it has stayed with us because it has proven to be useful in the regard of like, it's teaching us, it's improving us, it's making mm. our brains a little a little more fit because it's almost like we're having a little training session by listening to music, by enjoying art, by enjoying culture, and that makes everything else in our lives just a little bit better and a little bit easier. So like music is teaching us how to learn in a way. Pure speculation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I definitely think there could be something to that, but I I would also come back at it from the other angle because uh, it's clearly not as simple as music sets up a pattern that you can predict. And then when you correctly predict the pattern, it's pleasurable because if, if music is too predictable, it becomes boring, right? Right. And th- th- this goes sort of, it would at least uh, on the face of it, seem to go against something we were talking about earlier, which is that a lot of these peak experiences of free sun come precisely when patterns are broken or violated. It's not when it's the most predictable and you, you, the easiest to get the pattern recognition right. It's when something changes unexpectedly that you feel the, the tingles all over. But at least for me, that's the learning aspect of it. Um, to to throw something in that perhaps Robert would say if Robert were here, um, there's a thing with meditation where, um, you know, if you're trying to clear your mind and you're trying not to think about anything, mm-hmm. and then you accidentally think about a slice of strawberry cheesecake, you know, that's bad in the regard that you're trying to think of nothing. However, the active energy you take during uh, most kinds of meditation to clear your mind again to go, okay, get out of my mind, strawberry cheesecake. I'm trying to think about nothing. That is akin to like doing a rep. It's like akin to like doing something active to make you better. So perhaps the subversion of patterns that we recognize, our brain does hit the little food pellet switch and go, good job. (laughs) You noticed, you know, aren't you a smart little person? Keep up, keep it up. You know, you're learning You're you're, you're being, um, you're being someone trained to understand patterns when they change and perhaps to pay extra attention to when they do change because that's perhaps when life is at its most dangerous is when the when the patterns are subverted, not when the patterns are the same. Well, that actually ties into something else I came across. So I mentioned earlier that I, I watched that video that was an interview with a, uh, a, a music neuroscientist named uh, Matt Sachs. And uh, Sachs had speculated – now, this is actually going more back in, uh, back in a previous uh, possible explanation that we were talking about for the, the neurobiological mechanisms of, of pleasure and frisson. But uh, when, when you go to the idea of the uh, arousal of the autonomic nervous system, you know, the fight-or-flight response – uh, and, and getting goosebumps as a result of a of cold or being under threat, 
Sachs is talking about the pleasurable response to music in those terms. Maybe getting goosebumps is like a threat. And he speculates, I'm, I'm not sure how much research there is to back this up, but he speculates on maybe sometimes high pitched notes or sudden dynamic changes in music are actually initially reacted to by the body as a kind of threat. And so it's like, you know, when you detect a loud sound, what does that usually mean? It usually means like there's something you need to pay attention to because it's possibly dangerous. But then uh, he speculates that after the startling sound, such as the dynamic change in the music or the sudden high voice or something is rationalized by the prefrontal cortex and judged actually safe that's when the sense of pleasure comes. It's in the realization that your your brain has sort of been startled into a semi-fight or flight response by something in the sound, but actually it's just a piece of music. And it's like realizing that the threat in a horror movie is not actually dangerous. I was just thinking the same thing. Like, like a horror movie, like a roller coaster, it's um, a safe exploration of fear and anticipation is definitely a big part of that. I mean, think about any jump scare in a horror film, you know? Yeah. Interesting. But anyway, uh, to come back to Harrison and Louis and their summary of, uh, of a study from 2001 by Blood and Zatore, uh, they write that, that these researchers, quote, uh, showed with PET scanning of people under musical frisson that patterns may reflect a craving reflex similar to that surrounding responses for food, sex, and drugs of abuse. It's possible then that the reason we develop such affinity for frisson-inducing music is that once we experience musical frisson, we develop a dopaminergic anticipation for its return, effectively becoming slightly addicted to the musical stimulus. I mean, that's an analogy I've made before when it comes to um, seeking out new music, that it is mm -hmm. similar to a drug. And being a person who is uh, very much a teetotaler in every way, uh, mm. <laughs> I do not want to diminish people's actual addictions to real drugs, but following the same patterns, uh, yeah, of just like, oh, I, I think I can find a new, another album. Like, I haven't heard a new album that really got me excited lately. I got I to gotta go, to, go down to the record store. I need to go find something else. I got to go dig through some crates. And it's just sort of like that feeling of, there's something out there. There's something out there that's really good and you haven't heard it yet. So you need to go get it. You need to go find it. You need to talk to people. And, yeah. uh, and those are the things you can do on Record Store Society. Find it wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you, when you're seeking out new music, do you actually have like the, these direct pleasurable experiences in mind as like sort of the thing you're questing after? Uh, because while I do love them in music, I remember when I was more obsessed with like finding new music, I had a, a probably a stupider idea in my head, which was like, once I hear this album, then finally I'll understand music. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I do. I definitely do. I, I, I felt that also um, where um, in particular, if there were albums that everyone said were truly, truly great. And I would go, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to find this album. Let's say it's uh, the Velvet Underground and Nico, you know, the famous mm. one with the uh, Andy Warhol banana on the cover. Banana, yeah. Um, where I'm like, this is that album that everyone keeps talking about. One day mm -hmm. I'm going to find it. I'm going to listen to it. And then I'll know what everyone's talking about. And I will have achieved something. It will be like a, a totem somehow that I have found mm. and listened to this album. Obviously this is way before any kind of streaming media. So it was much more difficult to track down and purchase an album when I was a kid. Um, 
But but in that same regard, I would say, uh, to answer your question about seeking it out and does that provide some sort of pleasure, I do think that for me personally, the things I love most in music are um, progression, change, experimentation, uh, people trying new things. I really love mm-hmm. uh, really experimental, really, um, you know, for lack of a better word, odd music. I really enjoy that. Uh, mm-hmm. Not to say that I don't also enjoy, you know, some some Beatles as well. But um, but that being the case, I would not be surprised if deep down subconsciously, me perpetually seeking stranger music, seeking the experimental and the, um, you know, the... the um, the, the new, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, is perhaps trying to find that thrill again, find that 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 roller coaster, find that um, that uh, oh, the, that 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 jump scare from that that scary movie, you know. Oh well, this is interesting because this connects to something else I was reading. So I, I was reading an interview with a researcher named uh, Dr. Eugen uh, Vasilevsky who studies the the science of the human response to art and aesthetics at a place called the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics. And he'd done some work on essentially uh, people's frisson reactions, not just to music, but to other genres of art, such as poetry, because also people can get frisson from poetry. And so he did a study on that. And one thing he noted, this was in the context of poetry, but I think it's probably also true of music, is that he found that experienced people need more complexity in order to be affected. Mm. So basically, the more experience you have with a genre of art, usually the weirder you need it to be. Does that make sense? No, 100%. I've made this analogy myself where um, people have asked me, oh, why are you listening to that noise? Like literally, you know, noise. There's a lot of noise albums that I very much enjoy. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, think about it like a foodie. Where there's a person out there who, you know, they love pasta and they eat their pasta and it's so good. But at a certain point after they've really, really focused and studied and had so much pasta that's coming out their ears, they're like, you know what? I think like I need to go to this like gastro microbiology center where they give me like a <laughs> pasta foam and like a, a snifter of basil liquefied that I inject in my arm. Like, they're, yeah. they're, like I, I do think that all art does eventually become stranger and stranger. And I think that goes for everything. I think that goes for shoes. Sneakerheads will probably do the same thing. Same thing with um, people who are really into cars, people who are really into, um, I think everything, honestly, I, I, I do think yeah. all aesthetic appreciation eventually gets really strange because you're perhaps getting a little bored and you're looking for that new feeling again. Right. Does that happen with everything? Uh, so I wonder about cars. Like if you, if you are somebody who's obsessed with cars, you go to all the auto shows and you read right. all the car blogs and all that. Eventually, are you like only interested in Batmobiles and rocket powered cars and stuff? Or like, I don't know. I, I wonder about that. I think this will relate again to uh, what we were looking at um, before with like the different kinds of brains where there was yeah. the one kind of brain um, that this was when you were talking about openness, how one was looking for the novel, looking for the new, and the other one was looking mm. for the traditional, looking for the essential, you know? And I, I really do feel like perhaps let's, let's take a car example. I think neither of us are car guys, but we will put ourselves in that world. 
There is someone that goes, no, my 1960s Corvette is the perfect car that I will love forever. And then there's mm-hmm. another person at the same car show who's looking at all the like the fancy, like, I don't even know what they're called, but like the like the prototype yeah. cars that will never yeah. actually be made, but always look really, really neat and futuristic and, and you know, uh, Blade Runner-esque. Um, They'll only drive one of those spike cars from Fury Road. <laughs> yes. And, and so I think both exist. And I think both exist in also in every form of art. Like there are people who are, I only listen to classic rock. And there are people who are like, no, I need I need some chainsaws on ice cubes, you know, through a reverb chamber. So, so I, 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 it's all there. You know, Pe- some people like Thomas Kincaid, some people like uh, Picasso. And I think it's, it's all good. It's all good. And I, I think perhaps what you're talking about with the, um, the differences between openness and just what brain connectivity does for you personally might, might uh, help explain that and Frisson. Yeah, I think you could be right about that. Uh, so I realize, oh, time is running short, but there's one more thing I wanted to hit before we wrap up because I think this is interesting as well. Um, so I came across, like I mentioned, this researcher named uh, Eugen Vasilevsky. He's got a study I was looking at published in Social Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience, but I actually found what was really interesting was an interview with him done by a poetry uh, journal called The Napkin Poetry Review. And in this interview, uh, this guy was talking about the concept of pleasure in negative emotions, which I think is something that really does need to be addressed if we're talking about uh, frisson in in music, because it's so often in in songs that are sad or have some kind of negative valence. And actually, uh, he points out that you know Aristotle wrote about this apparent paradox. Like, why do people enjoy going to the theater to watch tragic plays that are full of pity and fear and anguish? Are these emotions not painful when we experience them in our lives? And the answer is yes, they are, but there must be something about experiencing them in the context of a play that transforms these negative emotions into something pleasurable that we want to seek out and repeat. Hmm. And as an analogy, you might think, of course, about that sad song you can't stop listening to. There's some kind of pleasure in the aesthetics of sadness. Um, now, another way of possibly explaining this is that uh, Aristotle wrote also about the the complexity of negative emotions themselves and how they often contain pleasurable aspects. So, for example, he wrote that anger always has an element of pleasure in it because the person who's angry is always at some level sort of experiencing a thrill from uh, from the expectation of vengeance for you know the way they've been wronged. And uh, and obviously, you know, th- there's a lot of media that clearly seems geared towards just making people recreationally angry. Sometimes people want to get angry about stuff. But uh, you could also say that the same could be true about sadness, that maybe there is something going on with sadness, that m- maybe sadness can be pleasurable in some ways if it's, uh, say, due to separation of loss because there's this pleasurable anticipation of redemption and reunion, the same way that anger could be pleasurable because there's this anticipation of revenge. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, for so for, for this researcher, uh, Vasilevsky, he said that this ended up making him want to study the, the concept of being moved, which is something that's clearly not just like pleasurable or painful. It is this intense emotional state that can blend positive and negative emotions into a single episode. It's, it's pleasure and pain indivisible, actually. 
um, and that he uh, he added a hypothesis onto this concept of being moved, which has been explored by by philosophers for centuries, which is that it seems like peak moments of being moved, having this ambiguous, complex emotional episode where you're experiencing both maybe joy and sadness at the same time, those experiences tend to be marked by emotional chills or goosebumps yet again. And so he did some research looking into this in people's responses to poetry and uh, in, in talking about possible reasons why pe- why we might have this reaction. He says, you know, it could be that it's it's conceptually when something feels important and at stake, you know, when when it feels like uh, that the autonomic nervous system is aroused and causes this goosebumps reaction uh, uh, that is presented to the conscious brain as a sort of signal that something that's going on in the art that you're listening, you know, the music you're listening to or the poem you're reading, something important seems to be up for grabs and that you need to be on alert and remember what's happening. Hmm. Makes sense. And th- this comes back to, you know, I, I can think of, of a lot of the things that give me goosebumps in art that are somewhat positive, but they also, like I was saying earlier with Les Miserables, they involve some element of like risk or change, maybe displays of courage or new possibilities, which are themselves often very, very kind of scary. So uh, coming back to uh, what Vasilevsky says in this interview, he says, you have the negative emotion on the foreground and this antidote in the background or vice versa, but there's always this clash. You can't really decide on if it's now positive or negative. So it's somehow both. And this creates a lot of tension. But importantly, we can experience this clash from an aesthetic distance mode. So it's something about the the ambiguity of these uh, these you know, stimuli that elicit a combination of, of pleasure and pain of joy and sadness at the same time that cause this feeling of being moved something about the, the high stakes that seem to be suggested by these, uh, by these complex emotional states, maybe stimulate the autonomic nervous system because it's making your body in some conceptual sense, feel threatened as if there was like a bear menacing you. And it's trying to get your attention to do something about this, this concept that's being raised. But then again, uh, as with what we talked about before, maybe it's possible that you realize you can trigger this response with some kind of aesthetic stimulus like music or, or poetry. And then once you realize you can trigger it, the, the, the reward system in the brain just wants to get it again and says, well, let's try that again and again. <laughs> and, and that's what motivates perhaps the, the pleasurable kind of feeling there. It's the grasping after it. Yeah. I, I, I think we've answered some – well – I'm not going to say we've answered some questions, but like you said, we, uh, we've identified some puzzle pieces, we've laid them out on the table, and we've taken a good look at them. <laughs> what seems most compelling to you now that we've talked about all this? I do think that Frazan seems to me to be an evolutionary leftover that is tied to uh, the fight or flight response, and that perhaps our brains have misinterpreted it into something that has made us enjoy art in many ways, but in particular music, which doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> However, that's what it's, it's adding up to in my mind. And um, 
yeah, and uh, this could this is a this is a deep deep situation that we've we've kind of dug ourselves into, and I'm yeah. not sure if we'll be able to get out. All right. Well, the next thing is everybody's got to go listen to Record Store Society. What's a what's a good uh, episode for people to start off with? Is something you've done recently you think people should look up? Well, if uh, they specifically want to hear you and Robert, uh, they got to check out. Uh, let's see, I think that's episode 17, and that episode is called Video Dream, and that's the one where we do a deep dive into a whole bunch of uh, our favorite music videos. Um, let's see. There, there's a lot of other really good ones. Oh, man. Um, there's a really great one called EP or not EP. That's episode 19, where <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that, that's uh, there's a music journalist and author, uh, Matt LeMay. He was one of the, uh, or, or like the like original like uh, pitchfork writers back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's a really fun conversation. Uh, we've got a really great episode coming out this Friday, but I, I, I uh, suppose, yeah, it's tomorrow. I can I, I can say here. Uh, tomorrow we've yeah. got this really great musician named uh, M. Sage. He's one of my favorites. And um, we're discussing uh, music documentaries. And uh, that's Ooh. a very fun, deep well. So because uh, um, M. Sage, uh, in addition to being a wonderful musician, also happens to be a uh, film professor uh, in Chicago at, at, at a university. So uh, he, he's got a really great um, dual knowledge that really uh, music documentaries are the perfect subject to have him talk about. So he's a lot of fun. So anyway, uh, there's always something fun going on. Every episode's good, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but those are a few. All right, folks. Well, if that catches your fancy, you should go check out Seth's podcast, Record Store Society. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's see, do we have anything else? No, I guess that wraps it up for today. But um, but yeah, if you want to find any more of your uh, of our podcasts, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on all the platforms, all the stuff like that. Or you can just Google us. Uh, of course, please, as always, uh, hit subscribe if you're not subscribed so you can get all of the episodes we put out in the future. Uh, big thanks, as always, to Seth, who is our wonderful producer, produces every episode of this show uh, and does, does such a great job. Seth, we love you. And we... we I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Very happy to do it. And uh, Robert will be back next time. That's right. Yes. So Robert will be back on the show uh, in the next episode. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us to give us feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.